Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And here we are. This is our first time recording in a couple of months. And it's our first time recording in different states. That is right. Over the summer, Shay and I both moved. We used to live down the hall from one another in our apartment building. Now I'm in Delaware. And I'm in New York. So yeah, Zoom, we're going to give this a go. We're going to see that the energy is still here. This is a tri-state podcast now, and (laughs) we're just going to keep it rocking. Yeah. Movie today was a recommendation, and it is Cabin in the Woods. I was excited just because this movie packages a a bunch of other awesome movies all in one. So I was excited. How did you feel watching it, Elise? Well, I knew going into it a little bit about the premise that it sort of pokes fun at horror movie tropes and that there would be a lot of references. So I thought, I guess in this last almost a year of getting some more experience in the horror movie genre than I had ever had before, I thought it would be interesting to sort of see what I could catch. And I don't think I got everything, but I could recognize some of the general patterns and some of the overarching themes and jokes there. And that part of things I did enjoy. Yeah, there's a lot to notice. There's a lot to pick up on. But it breaks down the idea that each slasher has a formula and kind of has this set of characters that it presents and a problem and a place and a conflict. And it all follows a similar formula. And this movie, very much like what Scream did, takes this formula and kind of just puts it in front of the audience's face in a way of like, aren't you tired yet? Or aren't you sick of this yet? But instead of just putting it out there for people to critique or people to make fun of, it still creates a very unique horror movie while doing so. And it has like every monster that you could find in it. It has like all of the stereotypical characters, all of the things that happen, but it's awesome. It came out in 2011 and was written by Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard. And apparently they wrote it in like one weekend and three days in a hotel room after they both had these projects that kind of fell through for them and they were feeling dejected and just kind of hopeless. So they just kind of hold themselves up in a hotel room and wrote this in three days. And Lionsgate really, really, really liked it. It got delayed. It was filmed, I think, closer to 2008, 2009 and came out in 2011. But uh, audiences really latched onto it and really liked what it had to say about the horror genre as a whole. Yeah, I definitely think it posed some interesting questions as well. Like, it definitely said some stuff, but also it said some stuff that I wasn't sure what it was saying. (laughs) You know what I mean? Especially, I think, at the end. Yeah, so definitely some some commentary, some questions. I mean, a lot of comedy, a lot more comedy. Again, I feel like that has been something that's happened maybe three or four times now, going into a movie and not expecting it to be as funny as it turned out to be. I know last time an episode was released, we did Teeth, and that was the same thing. I had no idea it was going to be as funny as it was, and it's the same thing here. A lot of really good comedy. Horror's been funny. People just don't think it's funny, or it's not as obviously funny because you're vacillating between a bunch of emotions at once, so that comedy's really needed to levy there, and there's definitely some characters that are meant for the comedic relief and obviously just some intentionally and unintentionally funny moments. All right, let's get into it. Yeah. So we open up with the credits. There are some bloody hieroglyphics flashing across the screen. And then 
pretty quickly, there's this contrasting image of a coffee machine in an office building. And we are moved into a room with fluorescent lighting and two men are chit-chatting. It's the morning. They're at work. Um, And it's kind of an interesting, jarring opening scene. And they're talking about some kind of project that they're working on. And they say, we haven't had a glitch since 98. You know, it's going to be fine. Yeah, it's a lot of just water cooler morning talk. They're talking about childproofing their cabinets for their (laughs) kids. And from what I understand, this scene was put there very intentionally to confuse audiences because it doesn't feel like a cold open of a horror movie or of a slasher. Because usually you have, you know, a couple or a group of friends that get killed off relatively quickly and it serves as a cold open to establish that there is a bad thing and a bad character somewhere and that is doing this thing and establishing this pattern. But instead, you're finding a bunch of people in an office building and you're thinking, hey, maybe it's like the Belco experiment or maybe it's like something like that. But no, (laughs) it's just these people from the organization that are planning this experiment. And they also bring up that they are in competition with a different experiment that is happening in Japan. So they kind of set up that the United States has stake in whatever event is about to happen or whatever is about to be facilitated by this organization and that it's a global interest and that other countries are taking part in the work that they're doing. I also found it funny that they put themselves in competition with Japan a lot, obviously for historical significance, but also the fact that J-horror is very, like horror in Japan is just very big, big part of its culture. So I thought that was just obviously intentional and a little interesting. But yeah, we get a quick transition. We move to a residential neighborhood where we have this panning in shot of going in through a girl's window, which I thought was very Michael-esque. But because of its score and the music that's behind it, it feels a lot more like a teen drama or some sort of like, I don't know, like Gilmore Girls-esque thing, just because the way (laughs) it's described. But if you think about the idea of why aren't you going in through the front door, you're going in through a bedroom window to a girl in her underwear. It's very voyeuristic, but the way that it's lit and the way that it's scored makes it feel not intimidating. So I just found that shot interesting. That's a good point. Because it is the middle of the day. And Mm -hmm. it seems like a very nice sunny day. And that's where we meet our redhead, our girl um, whose room we're in. And her name we find out to be Dana. And she is played by Kristen Connolly. And she's most known for her role as Christina Gallagher on House of Cards, as well as her role in this film. So if you recognize her, it'll probably be from one of those things. Yeah, so she's looking at some of her books and kind of staring longingly at this picture that she presumably drew of an older man. And her friend Jules steps into the room and kind of snatches up the photo. And it's revealed that Dana had been having an affair with her college professor, which is like, oh, okay, cool. Like, go get it, Dana. But this newly blonde girl, Jules, is being protective and ripping up the photo and is instead setting her up with her boyfriend's friend, Holden. So you have Jules, a very newly blonde best friend, a a little more promiscuous archetype. Dana, who's a redhead, who's more reserved. And then there is the existence of Jules's boyfriend, Kurt, and his friend Holden, and they are going on a weekend trip together. 
And Jules is played by Anna Hutchinson. And she was in some Power Ranger movies and just a smattering of other TV shows like Shortland Street and Anger Management. So you might recognize her as well. And her boyfriend, Kurt, is played by Chris Hemsworth. Thor. Yes, we love it. And then, well, and then when this movie came out, it was post-Thor then. Yeah, so this movie was filmed before Avengers or before whatever Marvel movie that really <laughs> premiered. I'm not, I'm not in with the Marvel universe. Go ahead, cancel me. But yeah, it was shot pre-Thor. And then after the Thor movie came out, you still have this like horror B movie with a very young looking Chris Hemsworth who was not nearly muscular and didn't have long hair. And it was very, very jarring. But <laughs> yes, enter Thor and then also enter Dr. Jackson Avery, a.k.a. Holden, played by Jesse Williams, who I know from Grey's Anatomy. A lot of people know from Grey's Anatomy, but his name is Holden. And that is the person who they are trying to set Dana up with. So when we meet Kurt, he comes into Dana's room to meet up with Jules. And I guess we can assume that they're roommates. And he kind of teases Dana. She's trying to pack books to bring on this weekend trip to the cabin where Jules had encouraged her to take them out. He suggests another book that she might be interested in reading and kind of shows us that even though he has an athletic background, for example, we see him throw a football out of the window to his friend in the street where he almost gets hit by a car, but doesn't. We see that he, you know, is, you know, quite academic. You know, he has a recommendation for a book for Dana to read. So he seems pretty well-rounded. Exactly. He's, you know, making these book recommendations. You can tell that he's smart. He's on full academic scholarship. You come to find out. So, and I think he, they even say he's like a sociology major. So he's definitely not this like archetype of an athlete or like this bonehead or anything like that. He's a little more well-rounded. And then we meet Holden on the street. And then as they are packing up an RV to go to Kurt's cousin's cabin in the woods, the last person in the troop, Marty, rolls up in a beater car. And as soon as he opens the door, smoke comes billowing out because he was smoking a bong on the way. And there's a lot of funny dialogue about how, you know, statistically cops will never pull over the man that is smoking a bong while driving. Cops fear this man because he is (laughs) like he's talking in platitudes and talking very grandiose about how anti-authority he is and how he's like pushing the button on what society needs and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, he's really playing into this stoner archetype who's thinking very largely about the systems that he exists within. And also his bong is it it's like a coffee thermos that extends out into this massive contraption. So when he's done, he just collapses it back and it looks like a regular coffee thermos, which I thought was funny. Which, fun fact, was fully functional. It actually was a fully <sighs> functional bong. And it it was a prototype that cost like $5,000 for them to make because they wanted it to be genuine. What? $5,000? Something like that. <laughs> Something like that. Well, it comes in handy later. (laughs) But yes, this is all feeling very mystery machine. And we kind of talked about this in the Mm. very first episode that we have. 
you kind of have, you know, Marty, who is the Shaggy archetype. He's a very obvious stoner. He even looks like Shaggy in the way that he's dressed, very loose fit clothing, long Shaggy hair. You have Kurt, who's kind of like the Fred, this like alpha male athlete type. You have Jules, who's kind of like Daphne, this pretty girl. You have Dana, who's like the bookish smart one, who's a little more virginal and reserved. And then for lack of a better comparison, you have Holden, who is Scooby because he is like the other. He is the only non-white character among them Mm. and he is like new to the group new to the group dynamic so for lack of a better comparison he he can be scooby and they are piling themselves into an rv and going to find adventure elsewhere so they're fitting very neatly into these little stereotypes that you kind of find among the groups of friends in other horror movies and things of the like And while we're in this scene introducing our five college-age kids in this gang, we are kind of going back and forth between what's going on in that office setting, laboratory setting that we were introduced to in the beginning, and then also back to what the kids are doing. So we have these two completely different settings, and we know that they are going to have something to do with each other, but nothing is quite clear yet as they go back and forth. So eventually... Kids are on their way to the cabin and they stop at this super creepy gas station for some gas where they meet a creepy guy. Oh, this part reminded me of something, but I can't remember. Oh, it reminded me of Friday the 13th. Yeah, yeah. I I literally wrote down spooky gas station stop with foreboding slash sexist slash racist crazy man. Check. (laughs) Because that is a stop. Like there's this really good quote by Carol Clover, which I've been trying to find this entire time, which essentially if I'm going to paraphrase it, talks about how for a slasher film, you need a group of young, sexually active teens. You need them to go to someplace else, usually called the bad place. So they need to change location. They're changing location. There's usually someone along the way that stops and forebodes of this warning. In Friday the 13th, it's Earl, right? It's crazy Earl. That is this person being like, don't go to Camp Blood. But instead you have this guy, Mordecai, who's out here speaking prophecies off the tongue and making Holden feel very uncomfortable because he accuses him of stealing and he's the only black person among this friend group. And then he's calling Jules a whore. Like, it's just very uncomfortable. Despite these warnings and despite these icky vibes, the group continues on to the cabin where they arrive. And it looks so scary, even in daylight. Yeah, it's very much a take on the evil dead house. So the a lot of the big formula, I would say, in terms of like location and even monster choice aligns with a movie called The Evil Dead. So this is looks almost exactly like the Evil Dead House, very nestled back into the woods. And you even come to find out through Mordecai's speech that this is the Buckner house and no one really stays at the Buckner house for very long and bad things happened there and all that kind of stuff. So again, you're finding that there's a level of lore. And even when they're talking to Mordecai, I found this interesting too. They brought in talking about politics and war because Mordecai, I guess, is a veteran and St. Jules just innocently asked, well, what war did you fight in? And he's like, you know, goddamn well, what war? So again, (laughs) you're seeing that 
all of these things are politically driven, all of horror is politically like informed and what's going on in its history. We talked about that a lot in our history episode. So you're seeing that they are trying to put very neatly that these are the elements that exist in all of them, but it's not clumsily done. It all It's all kind of very purposefully placed through dialogue and staging and things like that. But yes, arrived at the house. And actually, really quick, when they are driving to the cabin before they even get there, we see them move through this tunnel in the rock in the cliffside. And there is a bird that the camera lingers on and follows out as it flies over the canyon. And it hits this type of force field in the middle of the sky, it seems, and is electrocuted and falls. So that is kind of our first indication regarding some kind of connection that is existing between this group of kids going into the mountains and what might be going on with this office scene. Perhaps they are entering into, and it looks very much like they are entering into some kind of synthetic environment. I forgot about that scene even because I'm just paying attention to other things, but you definitely can tell. Yes. Like exactly like you said, it's a synthetic, it's a a synthetic, a synthetic (laughs) environment. You even saw like when the kids were the kids, right. When the group calling the kids, the kids, (laughs) you even see when the group is leaving the college apartments, that there was a man in full surveillance gear, watching them with binoculars off the roof. And the people in the organization now have them on surveillance. So you can tell this is very Truman show esque in terms (laughs) of like, Everything is very intentional. Everything is set up. They're being influenced and they just don't know how much yet. They don't know that they're part of something larger. But I would say the next pivotal scene is everyone finds their room in the house and Holden discovers that there is a two-way mirror or a one-way mirror. Whichever one that (laughs) someone look, I don't know what it's called, but whatever one that you can look through and see somebody else on the other side. Yeah, he gets into his room and sees this super unsettling painting on the wall. An animal, is it a goat or something, sort of being torn apart by other animals or people? Anyway, just a very kind of gruesome scene being depicted on this really big painting. And he says something like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> and reaches up and takes the painting off the wall. And we see Dana standing in what we learn to be that one-way mirror situation. So she's looking in the mirror, playing with her hair and just kind of inspecting her face. And Holden is kind of shocked still for a minute. That's such a creepy thing to find. Not at all what you would expect. And we see Dana start to undress. She's going to get in her bathing suit. And we have this moment where Holden is wondering, should I keep watching? Should I not? And he ultimately decides to knock on the wall to get Dana to stop. And he goes around and explains to her what's going on. And then Holden offers to switch rooms if it makes Dana feel better. So she knows that she wouldn't watch. But I noticed that as soon as they do switch rooms, Dana like walks into her new setup. The picture is still off the wall so she can see through into what is now Holden's room. And he literally starts undressing right away. (laughs) It feels very (laughs) show-offy. It's like getting changed in front of a window. Like if you have Mm. a wide open window and you're just stripping down to your skivvies, like, I don't know. All I thought was it's obvious that Holden's a man because any (laughs) woman who has ever lived on the ground floor or the first floor of an apartment knows never to have the fucking window open when they're changing just because you're giving everybody like a show and he just either seems to lack that awareness or obviously there is some 
inkling of interest. So perhaps this is his way of just being like, this is what I have to offer. Here's my ripped bod. Here's my everything. But (laughs) she quickly puts the picture back on the wall and covers it. And then we are back in the surveillance room with Gary and I forget the other guy's name. Either way, there's these two guys who I know were supposed to be fashioned off of the directors like that. That's kind of like the roles that they're playing in terms of like creating this formula and creating this cinematic experience. But the main folks in the organization are these two guys. Sitterson and Hadley. Sitterson and Hadley. So Gary Sitterson to finish the full name. I don't know why I remember Gary. It was just the most white (laughs) dude name I could think of. And like, he's the one talking about childproofing his cabinet. So that just sounded right to me. But either way, (laughs) Sitterson and Hadley are discussing the experiment and they are being updated on everyone's vital signs. And this is where it's revealed that the surveillance people were in charge of influencing Jules first by adding components to her hair dye that can seep in through her scalp and make her dumber. So you see Jules is a very rational minded person where she's explaining to Dana why her thing won't work. And while she's vibrant and bouncy, she doesn't seem to be foolish. But instead, this on a whim decision to dye her hair blonde is now affecting her cognition and physicality to where she is beginning to act a little more in line with our horror archetype because of Mm -hmm. the outside influence of the organization. And our technician who is sort of delivering this information to Sitterson and Hadley, her name is Wendy. She's played by Amy Aker. And she also mentioned something about increasing like pheromones to impact the libido of all of the characters staying in the cabin. So we have some weird stuff going on. Um, not only the hair dye, but sort of different chemicals being pumped into this environment to make not just one character, but all of the characters act differently. Yes. And you kind of have the perspective of an outsider because you have this person from another division. I don't know if he's FBI He seems like he's FBI, but this man named Truman, who is kind of learning what this process is so that we kind of have an excuse for the organization to talk about how it works. So for example, while the group is enjoying the lake and swimming and and just kind of bantering, you get a scene with the organization where they're explaining to Truman, their betting pool process. So there is a big whiteboard with all of these monster movie characters on it. You see a merman, you see the twins from The Shining, you see all of these different villains from a lot of slasher movies, from a lot of horror movies, and each department in the building is betting on what monster is going to make an appearance during this experiment, during this scene and Truman's very confused it's just like well don't you engineer everything like don't you choose and they're like no their choice is very important they have to choose their destiny on their own free will and the way they do that is by going into the basement so they haven't done this yet but they are foreshadowing that the group is going to somehow make a choice in what their antagonist is going to be throughout this experiment or throughout this experience but they have to choose the antagonist and this is just kind of like office banter of 
which one are they going to choose by making like a betting pool out of it? Like they're going to choose who wins Big Brother or Survivor, you know, but the, but instead <laughs> or the Super Bowl. <laughs> exactly. Like it's office culture, but instead it's how are these people going to die? And it is very dark and Truman doesn't seem to sit well with the way that they're doing it. And, you know, Hadley just kind of explains as long as the job gets done, the people upstairs don't care how we do it. So this is how mm-hmm. we do it because we need to kind of stay sane with the work that we're doing. And I found this to be interesting because I was looking up some trivia about the movie and I learned that much of Drew Goddard's inspiration for the movie came from his own upbringing in Los Alamos, New Mexico, a place filled with scientists where co-workers are all going about their business and living seemingly routine and ordinary lives, even though they were building nuclear weapons that could potentially destroy the world. So, oh, shit. So there you see where these people, they have this very soul-crushing job where they are kind of engineering these nuclear weapons of sorts, but instead of nuclear weapons they're these killers they're these monsters they're these antagonists so the director kind of used this experience and used how do these people go about their day-to-day lives doing monstrous things you have to bring levity to it and this is kind of the sick version of doing that where it's like oh we're putting these teenagers or these young adults through this traumatic thing for our gain let's make a betting pool out of it you know what i mean Mm. That is very interesting. Time goes on. It is now evening. The group is playing a game of truth or dare. Pretty stereotypical. Not as clever as Strip Napoli in Friday the 13th. (laughs) (laughs) But truth or dare, nevertheless, the first person who is dared to do something is Jules. And she is dared to make out with the taxidermied wolf head on the wall. And without batting an eye, she gets up very seductive style, saunters over to the wolf and has this whole role playing thing where she's like, who, me? Oh, hi. (laughs) Which was probably one of the more cringy parts of the movie. But she's so confident and she makes out with the wolf. So, yeah, we can see that she is certainly starting to fill out that role as this sort of morally loose, body confident, seductive character. Yeah, she's even dressed differently. Like in the beginning, she isn't dressed any more or less revealing or promiscuous than Dana is. But now she is wearing a crop top and short shorts. And I did read that they had to put powdered sugar on the taxidermied wolf's mouth so that it was a little (laughs) more enjoyable (laughs) for Jules' actress. Even too... Kurt is now wearing a Letterman jacket. Like, where did this come from? He <laughs> now a beer is positioned in his hand at all times and he is objectifying his girlfriend. Like, he's kind of like, you know, elbowing Marty and Holden being like, you see my girl over there? Da-da-da. Like, he's acting <laughs> very bro like, very macho like. So, you see that these two are beginning to succumb to whatever influence the organization is having a little quicker than everyone else is so it is dana's turn to play truth or dare and before she's even asked kurt makes a dig at her saying oh she's gonna say truth whatever blah 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 and of course she kind of takes that as a challenge but while they're sort of having this conversation all of a sudden the cellar door in the middle of the floor behind them just bursts open very creepily i would shit my pants if that there is nothing about that that is settling. 
Kurt says maybe it was the wind. (laughs) And of course, Marty, who, even though he's sort of presented to us as this pothead, makes a dig at Kurt, like, what wind? He seems to be the most intelligent one, (laughs) um, hanging on to common sense throughout the entirety of this movie. Conveniently, that happens just in time for Dana to be dared to go down into the basement. Yes. So she ventures down into the basement. Marty is acting very scared, almost very shaggy, like, because he's oh, just yeah. like, uh, can we not? Can we just <laughs> not? Like, can we just go upstairs? And like, again, the voice of reason. But instead, everyone begins exploring and in each of them finds like all of these trinkets. And, you know, there's even dialogue saying like, you got a weird cousin, Kurt. <laughs> and Kurt's like, I don't think this belongs to him. I think this is <laughs> locked, like, like all that kind of stuff. But they're all picking up different items that they're kind of exploring. So for example, Holden, I believe is playing with like a music box with that has like a little ballerina on it. And Jules has this amulet and Kurt is holding a conch shell and Dana has this diary of sorts. And Marty is just like, get me the fuck out of here. Like he's looking at things, but he's staying very close to the stairs and is like, get me the hell out of here. But they're all representative of different fates, essentially. So this is what the organization was talking about earlier of this is how the group is going to pick who is going to become their antagonist unbeknownst to them. But Dana picks up a journal, which it belongs to somebody from the Buckner family who owns the house. And we learned that from Mordecai earlier. And Dana begins to read it aloud. And this is where, again, Marty comes in. Don't read it. Don't read it out loud. <laughs> it's like, don't, don't read it out loud. And then she's like, yeah, but it's in Latin. And he's like, don't read the Latin. Don't read the Latin. <laughs> But you hear a whisper from behind Dana say, read it. So again, you're hearing these influences of like, why else would she read this Latin aloud? Like, why else would you go and like read an incantation from a basement of a house that does not belong to you? But she does. She does read it aloud. And the Latin that she has says, dolor supervivo caro, dolor subliminis caro. Dolor Ignito Animus. So let's just hope that my apartment doesn't get very um, haunted by this Buckner family after this. (laughs) But essentially, it translates to pain outlives the flesh, pain raises the flesh, pain ignites the spirit. Oh, my God. Well, that explains why (laughs) after that beautiful incantation is read... We instantly see in some dark part of the forest beyond the cabin, hands start to bust out of the dirt and what we can assume to be the Buckner family start to be reanimated and move towards the cabin. Yes. And there is celebration in the surveillance room because they believe that this is going to be the experiment that puts them ahead over Japan because apparently the Buckner's have a 100% clearance rate. So a 100% success rate in all of the experiments in which they've been used in. So you could tell that the group is in for it. And something that I think is interesting about the basement scene is early on, well, not too much early on, but when Truman is sort of having that conversation with the others where they explain to him what's going on and kind of justify it. I believe it's Sitterson tells him they don't transgress, they can't be punished. As if to kind of decrease that shock factor that, you know, these people are getting themselves into trouble. Well, you know, they might not. They, if they don't transgress, they won't get themselves into trouble. They could be all fine. 
but nothing that any of them did in the basement felt like it was transgressing. You know what I mean? It was just kind of like looking at stuff in a basement. It's not like anybody defaced private property or do you know what I mean? So they chose, but at the same time, how could they ever know that they were doing something worthy of that punishment? <laughs> Especially when they're being influenced this entire time. Because even, mm-hmm. Trum- even Truman says that. It's like, well, you're not really giving them a choice. You're influencing them. You're pumping these pheromones and making them make stupid decisions. And you're sending saying things like, read it. Like, Otherwise, like that's not it, but you're starting to see how like backwards it is and how they have to justify what they're doing in order mm-hmm. to appease who they call the ancient ones. And this is where they pretty much lay it out that the reason that they are doing this is they have to appease the people downstairs and they have to make them happy. And if these things aren't done, there's a much larger cost for the test group that is going through this experiment. But during this, I believe Hadley says something along the lines of, should we just call Japan and tell them to take the rest of the weekend off? And you see on a, <laughs> and you see them on a screen that Kyoto is the only other experiment that hasn't failed besides the one in the United States that they're doing. And you see scenes of Samara from the rank floating in a classroom and terrorizing some Japanese school students. So again, you're seeing some nods to other countries' horror and their takes on that. And one of many references. So meanwhile, the group is back out of the basement. Jules starts to perform a bit of a burlesque strip tease type dance. And Marty is not really paying attention. He is deep in thought. You can tell that he is still very troubled by the basement, these feelings he's getting, definitely creepy vibes. And um, eventually Jules and Kurt leave the cabin and go into the woods and start making out and once again we have this juggling back and forth between what Jules and Kurt are doing and what is going on in this laboratory and even though Jules doesn't seem very interested in having sex in the woods with Kurt at first she's cold the scientists increase the temperature and then she's still not really quite feeling it they're pumping hormones out of the ground now to make sure that this interaction occurs the way they want it to we have all of these office workers mostly men watching the tv waiting for these two to get it on and it's just so strange seeing how much energy and effort has to go into making sure that these two have sex in the woods Yeah, they're all crowding around the TV and it's just like, oh, are we going to see some boobs? And Truman, again, (laughs) this like outsider is like, does it matter if we see her? And Hadley interrupts him and is just like, well, we have to keep the customer happy. And I thought that was very interesting because if you look at who primarily consumes horror content, it's teen boys. So you start to see that slashers are more revealing and obviously sexualize women and show breasts and show women naked a lot. And this is no exception. Jules gets naked in the woods and, you know, takes her top off and her and Kurt are on their way to pound town in the middle of the woods. And even then Hadley's like, Ooh, sex scene score. So (laughs) that's happening. And back at the house, you are starting to see changes in Holden. You don't really see very many changes in Dana, at least that I noticed. I don't know if you noticed anything. Mm -hmm. She seems to be like true to form. 
But Holden decides to put glasses on. He's now wearing glasses. It's dressed in like a button up is a little more astute. And he is now deciphering the Latin in the diary just on sight. And he's like, yeah, I haven't touched this stuff since like eighth grade. Funny how it all comes back. So you're mm-hmm. starting to see that he's getting a little nerdier, a little more toward like the scholar archetype and thus is becoming a lot more attractive to Dana because of her fixation on her old professor. Mm-hmm. Such a good point. Also, I think that Holden's transitioning into this scholarly fellow and putting his focus on this Latin is taking his focus off of Dana, which is maybe what helps her stay this quote unquote virginal character. Um, because you know, Holden and Dana had pretty much instant fireworks, a lot of sort of physical chemistry. And you can tell by the lingering looks and blah, 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 blah. And that beginning scene with the one-way mirror. But Holden isn't making those advances anymore or flirting really with her anymore. He's really focused on that Latin. So yes, it's attractive to her, but at the same time, it's kind of keeping her, I think, in the role that she's supposed to be playing. Yeah, this longing role because they end up making out and she ends up starting to say, oh, I'm sorry, I've never... And then she stops herself. She's like, well, I have. Like... (laughs) Like, like, like this dialogue of saying like, I've never had sex before. And, you know, Holden's being a good guy being like, oh, nothing that you're not comfortable with. But she has had sex before. She had a affair with a married man. So this is where you start to see her kind of being a little more meeker and a little shyer when she obviously wasn't shy enough to have an affair with a superior, like to do something morally abject when she was back on campus. But yes, while this is happening, Marty's very in his head and he's saying things under his breath like, puppeteers, (laughs) they're all puppeteers. (laughs) I guess nobody's taking him seriously because he's been smoking weed. Maybe that makes it easier to brush everything he's saying off. Like, oh, he's just paranoid because of all the weed he's smoking instead of valid for having these thoughts. I don't know. But we do know that the chemicals that are being pumped in that are specifically supposed to influence Marty are not working on him. And we hear the scientists discussing that something is interfering with those and we can assume that it is the weed that he's smoking. So he is not succumbing to the fool archetype he's supposed to play. So he's remaining pretty mentally sharp throughout this. Yeah, very conspiratorial, very observant. (laughs) But Dana, again, kind of says, like, Marty, I just think you're really high. Like, I just think you need, to, <laughs> you need to calm down. You need to not be thinking about all of these things too much. We're back to Kurt and Jules in the woods. They are getting it on. But out of the darkness come the Buckners, who are these just zombified family of sorts. And Kurt gets stabbed in like the side of the face or like his neck or something like that. And Jules gets restrained and they get like pulled and separated. And Jules ends up with her blouse is open and you can see everything. She ends up getting decapitated and in very much slasher fashion, the whore dies first. Oh, it's, uh, it's bad. I don't like it. I don't like it. It's like with this like rusty saw. And also one of the Buckners has like a bear trap on a chain that he swings around and like catches people with, which is super creepy. But also I feel like a kind of an original weapon. Have you ever seen that before? (laughs) A bear trap on a chain? 
Um, it's very reminiscent of Friday the 13th, actually. That, oh, like, really? Yeah, yeah. In some of the more sequels, um, oh, okay. he uses, uses something along those lines. Same with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think that there's, like, some element of a bear trap. But maybe not on a chain that gets kind of used as a grappling hook. Like, a lot of creativeness. But, again, this isn't to say that it should be expected that Jules should die first, if at all, because she was promiscuous with her boyfriend, right? Like that's not deserving of sorts, but you can tell that it's familiar and the, and that's Mm -hmm. what, you know, the directors are trying to do here is like, okay, like the promiscuous one ends up dying first because she is morally abject, thus needs to be punished for her transgressions for premarital intercourse, even though Kurt's there and doing it too. But Mm -hmm. Kurt manages to escape his captors and begin running back toward the house while Marty is talking to himself (laughs) and uh, again, just being really paranoid and he can hear voices trying to influence him. So the voices say, go for a walk. And he's like, I can tell what you're doing and I'm not going to listen to you. And then a beat passes and he's like, I'm going to go for a walk and then walks out and starts peeing just as Kurt reappears and saves him from the little Buckner girl who is about to grab Marty in the back. And Kurt just clotheslines this girl <laughs> with his arm. He just goes, you dead bitch. <laughs> Some good dialogue for sure. <laughs> So they run back inside. They interrupt Holden and Dana who are making out and they're like, oh my God, what's going on? And Kurt's like, there's people outside. Dana's like, come on. No, we have to go. We have to open the door. You're bloody. Like, let's go. Like, we have to do it. But when they open the door, they see the Buckner man there and tosses Dana, Jules's decapitated head. And that's enough to convince Dana that they have a problem here. Yeah, I would say more than enough. So they shut the door and they decide originally to stick together. That's what Kurt actually says. So he kind of jumps into this leader role. We have to stick together, go room to room, like barricade everything. But then once again, we hear that voice (laughs) split up. So then he says, actually, let's split up, which of course we know is always a bad move. (laughs) There's strength in numbers, y'all. So they each go into their own rooms and then they're locked into their rooms. You know, the rooms had been interfered with by the scientists. So they're stuck in there. And we're focused on Marty now, who is standing in front of an open window, open as in curtains are open window. And he, I forget what he's doing, but like, it reminded me of Friday the 13th when I was, what was the name of the final girl in Friday the 13th again? Alice. Yeah. She was always in front of open windows and it was so scary because you knew that there was a demon out there, a monster out there. And they can see inside if you're just hanging out in front of an open window. And it's the same thing here with Marty, who does end up getting snatched. But not before he knocks over a lamp and finds Mm. a wire. And this is what the stoner conspiracy theorist needed to see. Like he discovered that (laughs) there are wires under all of the moldings and he's pulling it and pulling it and realized that he is under surveillance. And he realizes this and goes, oh, I'm on a reality TV show. (laughs) He's like, I hope my parents don't think I'm a burnout. But yes, once he discovers that they are indeed being watched, he is snatched through the window and dragged outside. 
he is captured with that bear trap or maybe not the bear trap, but he's at least stabbed in the back and dragged away into an open grave. But we didn't mention this when Jules died. When Jules died, the people in the surveillance room stopped and they like said a prayer or something like that. And you saw blood start seeping into this stone fixture with an outline. So you start to see that blood is filling this pattern, but you don't really see what the pattern is, but you see that it is filling some sort of design. So Jules starts filling one design and then Marty's begins filling another design, but then the ground shakes. Like there's like a mini earthquake and you're not quite sure like what ends up happening, but that becomes significant later. But either way for now, Marty is incapacitated and out of the game. So it looks like Dana is going to be killed next. However, Holden comes to the rescue, saves her. Then in return, Dana saves Holden. And then Kurt saves them both. <laughs> so there's kind of this back and forth. Who's going to get killed? Who's going to get killed? But Kurt, Dana, and Holden still survive. They get into the RV, but when they shut the door, we can see a bloody handprint on the RV. And it's kind of foreshadowing that perhaps it isn't just three in the RV. Perhaps there is another. But they start driving away, and then a little bit of panic breaks out in the laboratory because they realize that they did not close off the tunnel that takes you out of the sort of force field barrier environment. So if they get out of that tunnel, then they're outside of the range of all of the sort of meddling that they had been able to do thus far. It looks like the three might make it out, but as we know, there wouldn't be a movie if they did. Citizen hits some kind of collapse button just in time for the tunnel to start collapsing. The three reverse, reverse, reverse out of the tunnel just in time, but they're stuck now in this weird environment. And they don't know that yet. We know that because of that bird in the beginning. And they're soon to find out because luckily Kurt has his motorcycle <laughs> in the RV he decides that that canyon isn't super intimidating to jump over. He gives this heroic speech. I will go, I will bring back help. And he goes to make the jump over the canyon. And honestly, like it looks like he's going to make it. But then he hits the force field and sort of ping pongs all the way down that force field to the horror of Dana and Holden. And it's pretty sad. Yeah, Dana whispers puppeteers and begins <laughs> to realize that Marty was right and that there are forces beyond their understanding that are influencing what they do, even to the degree that they are defenseless. So when Dana saves Holden from one of the Buckner family members, you even see that she's holding a knife and they press a button in the surveillance room that sparks the weapon and makes her drop it. So like mm -hmm. these things of like, why do you always leave the weapon? You never double tap. Why do you always do these things? You start to see like, oh, like maybe there's just something that makes you drop it. So Holden and Dana are defenseless with this RV. Kurt has gone down this ravine and his blood begins to fill in this pattern, a different stone pattern. So we can assume that he is out and it's Holden and Dana trying to escape. Holden begins on this dialogue of don't lose it on me. We can do this. You know, we're just going to go the other way. There has to be another road. There has to, we can go through the woods. We'll go on foot again in the same way that Kurt delivers this. I'll bring help back for you <laughs> monologue. He's doing this hopeful. We can make it out of here. We just need to stay together. We just need to X, Y, Z. 
Meanwhile, Dana is feeling very dejected and she's like, we're not going to make it out of here alive. We're going to die. We're not meant to survive. And just as they are talking about this, Holden is stabbed through the back of the seat by a hidden Buckner that had stowed away in the back of the RV and they crash into a lake. And as it sinks, Holden's pattern starts filling with blood. So he has died, but Dana is able to swim her way to the surface. And the experiment is supposedly successful because Japan fails their experiment You know, as they were blowing up the bridge, Hadley and them were very stressed out because Wendy had said, we have to win because if we don't, the ancients will rise and all of these types Mm -hmm. of things. So you're beginning to see that the fate of the United States' success is paramount to these certain things happening. But we don't know what the stakes really are. We just know that the ancient ones are the ones that need the sacrifice and need to be pleased. But as Dana swims to the dock, everyone starts cheering and begins popping some bubbly and Truman is confused and Truman's saying like, well, why? Why are we celebrating? She's still alive. And Hadley says something like, oh, well, the virgin can live or die. It doesn't matter. As long as everyone else dies before she does, it's a win, which, you know, you see in a lot of other slasher movies where sometimes the last girl dies and more often she lives and Dana has lived, which means by this formula, the experiment has been a success. However, (laughs) not quite a success, at least yet, or at all. I don't know, because there's a call from upstairs on a big red phone, (laughs) and it comes to be known that Dana is not the only one alive, and that Marty is indeed alive. And Marty comes to Dana's rescue. Since we're dealing with zombies, they don't die, but he's able to kind of incapacitate the zombie enough to help Dana. And he guides her into the grave that he was drug into because it's not a grave. It's a whole room that he had found and he had incapacitated his own zombie down there, which is how he survived. So now we're in this grave and now we're kind of seeing that these two might uncover what is going on in the lab. Yeah, and I felt conflicted when this happened only because, you know, what we are used to seeing of the final girl is the final girl, if nothing else, surviving. But while the surveillance people are celebrating and popping bubbly, you still see that the screen is recording everything that's happening and she is getting brutalized. Like she's being thrown across the dock and she is being slammed down. And, you know, that violence is the backdrop of this celebration of all of this department, primarily men who are celebrating off of this person's suffering. And I I just found the quote that I wrote down. The version's death is optional as long as it's last and she suffered so again like you're seeing the suffering happening and you don't even really get to see the exclamation point of dana overcoming the buckner person right you Mm. see marty come in and swoop in and kind of save the day which sometimes happens you know you sometimes have that person who died but then comes back for that one last gag so that the final girl can live but it really just kind of takes away from dana's power in the situation because you saw promise of that when she saved Holden and, you know, kind of gave a shitty one-liner when she like stabbed (laughs) one of them to death, but you really see that being undermined. And I think it was smart that they did that because you could tell that the audience isn't in it for that, like female empowerment. Otherwise Mm -hmm. more women would like horror movies, right? Like they want to see that last girl survive, but barely. 
and if possible, not by her own volition, by another man's volition. So I was conflicted when I saw that, but I know that it makes the most sense. And I found it funny because that line in the beginning, when they said, we haven't had anything bad happen since 98, that is a reference to Halloween H2O. And that is the movie where Jamie Lee Curtis definitively defeats Michael or supposedly actually kills Michael. So oh that, that is where like the final girl rose up and did it. And that came out in 98. So that I found was very obviously a funny reference. It seemed very like obviously just dropped without any nuance. But once I read that little bit of trivia, I was like, oh, yeah, because otherwise, like, Michael always escapes like, you know, he falls to the bottom of the balcony after being shot six times and like runs <laughs> away. But this is the time where like Jamie Lee Curtis gets to kill Michael. And that was like the incident that they were afraid of. So I found that really interesting. That is awesome. I was wondering what that was referring to. So I'm so glad that you found that information. So in the grave, which is a room, the two of them follow the corridors of this place long enough to find an elevator, which is odd. (laughs) And they decide to go in it and go down. Yeah. And it's not an elevator that just goes up and down. It's going side to side, all around. And as they are in this glass box, they are encountering other very spooky things. So they come across a wolf man and then they change positions and then there is a ghost. Someone who is styled after Pinhead from Hellraiser, this very dark and ominous leather cladded fellow. <laughs> and then, ooh. <laughs> and then they all obviously like have loose or direct references to other horror movies. This one I thought was the funniest, and I couldn't wait to tell you this. So the last one they see is this ballerina and her face Mm -hmm. is just full of teeth. And I thought I recognized it somewhere. So I went to like look up who that is supposed to be representative of. And apparently, you know, it looks like something that like Dario Argento would do, but it doesn't have a direct line. She's just called the sugar plum fairy, but she's also known as ballerina dentata. (laughs) (laughs) Ballerina dentata. Which after last week's episode with teeth, come on. Like, that's just hilarious. This month's theme is teeth. (laughs) (laughs) But I love that. Through all of these introductions, Dana begins to realize we chose, she says to Marty. And it pulls out and you start to see that they are in this labyrinth of elevators with many other monsters. I've showed at least this scene apart from this movie before just to show like how many people and like, you know, you could pause it and really count all of the different monsters that you see just to give some. You see the twins from The Shining, you see Pennywise or a killer clown, you see a giant cat, you see spiders, you see aliens, like you see like so many, but you begin to see that pretty much all of these horror movies or all of these experiments could be factored or engineered like through the same formula and through the same circumstances just by choosing a different villain and a different set of characters. And then you can pretty much reproduce and reproduce and have this experience over and over with different variations. 
And that's not to take anything away from the creativity of the horror genre whatsoever, but it's showing how these tropes exist. And really, you have these multitude of antagonists, and all you really need to do is change out what hot teens you're using and the time Mm. and place. It's cool. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, even though I didn't know who everyone was, I could still appreciate the multitude of different people. And also the way the elevators are, how they go up and down, side to side. They are so, it just looks really cool. Yeah. And even like, I've seen some behind the scenes things of how some of these were filmed. Like, you know, one of them, for example, is like a large tarantula. Like a lot of those were filmed by actually putting like a tarantula in a box and then just like filming it in front, but then they just blow it up to make it look like the size of everything else where some of the other things, like the more humanoid things were filmed in front of a green screen. And, but then you just have all of these things existing at once, but every single box was actually practically filmed. Like everything that's in a box was something that was built or something that that existed or something that was acted out. It, that stuff wasn't CGI. Obviously, the way that it is presented is CGI, but every single content was actually like filmed and thought through, which I thought was just an awesome attention to detail. Also, fun fact, all of the special effects and like the practical effects were done by Heather Langenkamp's production company and Heather Langenkamp is Nancy from A Nightmare on Elm Street. She's a final girl herself and she has since pivoted toward doing special effects for horror movies. That's like what her and her husband do. So she was like on set that entire time making all these monsters and recreating these things, which is awesome thinking about like her legacy in the horror genre as a whole, which I just thought was like super awesome. That's very cool, especially like the movie itself is about mashing up a bunch of different horror tropes in movies, but the production team is also like a mashup of all these different people who have hands in all these different parts of horror movies. So that's kind of cool to know. So while Marty and Dana are in this elevator, you know, the scientists are full aware that they are in a very, very bad situation. Presumably, these two have gotten farther into this underground labyrinth into uncovering what's going on around them than anybody has gotten before. And we can see that by the sheer panic that's on everyone's face, wondering what to do. We see our two main scientists again, giving instructions to the security down there that they have to kill Marty first. If Dana is killed first as the version, as we now know, everything goes to shit and everything is a failure. So when Marty and Dana are out of the elevator or see the elevator doors open before them, they have reached the bottom. They are faced with all of these security officers yelling at them, get out of the elevator, get out of the elevator. And then chaos ensues. Yeah, there was a zombie arm with them in the elevator that was left over from Marty's siege of the underground bunker that (laughs) ends up... That ends up incapacitating the guard to allow them to make their escape. They find themselves in the middle of many elevators, and then a voice comes over the loudspeaker. And the voice, we come to find out, belongs to the director. And the director is this voice from upstairs that Hadley and Citizen have been talking to and referring to, and they are kind of like the game master, for lack of a better term. But the director comes over the loudspeaker and begins speaking to Dana and Marty. So she says, what's happening to you is part of something bigger, something older than anything known. It is our place to placate the ancient ones as it is yours to be offered up to them. 
she begins to explain that you don't understand what's going on. You need to be sacrifices. Otherwise, we have humanity at stake here. But this does not deter Dana and Marty from running and hiding in a control room that is in front of all of the elevators. And as troops descend upon them, Dana says, let's get this party started and kind of hits this big red button that says purge system. And as the militant men come to descend upon them, all the elevators open. And what happens is one of the cooler scenes of the movie where you hear this ding and all of these monsters (laughs) just kind of empty out into this vestibule and start fucking shit up. It's very much like Monsters, Inc. times a million But just to name a few, we have a giant snake, we have zombies, we have a devil, we have a robot that is reminiscent of the movie Chopping Mall, which is about a robot that kills people in a shopping mall. You have aliens, (laughs) you have the masked people from The Strangers, you have ghosts, you have a vampire bat, you have a killer clown, a unicorn, scarecrows, like you have all of these different antagonists just kind of fucking shit up and killing all of these people in this office building as Marty and Dana attempt to make their escape further into the building. One of my favorite pieces of irony here is Hadley, who had been so disappointed that the merman wasn't chosen, that Kurt was so close to doing what he needed to do with that conch shell to choose that villain. Hadley himself is killed by the merman, and it is definitely a pretty gruesome death. Really messy. Yeah, apparently I read that. It's funny because the merman attacks Hadley and then spurts blood out of a blowhole on its back. And apparently... apparently they found like the largest container of fake blood that they could and had to film it in a single take and it sprayed for nine minutes but we only see the last 10 seconds (laughs) oh my god nine minutes nine minutes yeah nine minutes time also we see which was another cool hint to another horror movie the youngest buckner girl ends up joining the party so she's the only buckner that has survived the siege <laughs> like the massacre of her family <laughs> but she is actually the same actress who plays alessa from silent hill who also plays a very young oh. creepy girl character in silent hills movie like i've watched a million times growing up so that was like oh my god it's her as Hadley is being attacked by the merman, Sitterson escapes into a hatch, just as Wendy is kind of snatched up by this big venomous snake bat thing. I don't really know what, what takes her, but she ends up going. But after Citizen descends into another hallway, he is immediately stabbed by Dana, who is also escaping through that thing. His last words to Dana, he looks at Marty and is like, you have to kill him. And then Mm -hmm. Sitterson succumbs to his wounds and dies. But this plants a seed of doubt into Dana's brain of what these stakes actually are and how much these people have been lying to them or maybe haven't been lying to them about how important this process is. And then one of the most shocking parts of the movie, even more so than all of these things... We get into a downstairs labyrinth of sorts. We see those previous patterns we had seen filling with blood on the wall, representing five archetypes, the athlete, the fool, the whore, the virgin, which is the only one not filled with blood, and the scholar. And as they stand around looking at these ancient markings on the wall, they hear a voice and turn around to see the director who is none other than Sigourney Weaver. (laughs) Oh, yeah, Sigourney (laughs) Weaver. 
my, in my notes, I was like, Sigourney Weaver. I was very delighted to see her. <laughs> I read too that they had other people they considered for this role, but the directors knew that they needed it to be somebody who is instantly recognizable and associated with horror. They wanted to have Bruce Campbell first. And Bruce Campbell is Ash from Evil Dead, which is what a lot of this is based off of, but he wasn't available. They also mm-hmm. considered Jamie Lee Curtis. But oh, wow. they ended up going with Sigourney Weaver. And I think it was the best choice. I think she was perfect for it. Mm-hmm. And she finally puts together, you know, the whole story that we've been getting bits and pieces of that every year there are sacrifices made to the gods of the underworld. It keeps them at bay. If the sacrifice is not successful, they will rise up and kill everybody in the entire world. All of the other experiments in the different countries were unsuccessful, meaning I guess the monster was destroyed or the right order wasn't fulfilled regarding the deaths that took place. And the only way to complete the sacrifice is for Marty to be killed before Dana. And Marty is feeling confident. He's like, absolutely not. But then we see Dana has pointed the gun that she has at Marty. And this comes after she questions it because Sigourney Weaver is walking through all the archetypes And she says, leaving the last to live or die as fate decides, the virgin. And Dana's like, me? A virgin? And and Sigourney Weaver's like, we work with what we have. So you can tell that this this isn't even like a perfect process because Dana obviously isn't a virgin. But all of these people, these five youths, as there always are, get put into this archetype. The director also states that If they don't die, all of humanity does. She says, you can die with them or you can die for them. Mm. And this is what Elise refers to when Dana raises a gun at Marty and points it at his back because Dana is beginning to realize that the stakes of all humanity are at stake. But just as Marty is feeling conflicted on how he should feel about the situation, he does not warn Dana of a werewolf that has come up behind her and thus attacks her from behind, incapacitating her while Marty and the director fight for the gun. And I admittedly stopped taking notes after I saw Sigourney Weaver because I was so shook. So I kind of forget. (laughs) Oh, I got it. Okay, can you tell me? The last thing I literally have is Sigourney Weaver, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. (laughs) So Dana is bitten by a wolf and she goes down and Marty and the director are like beating each other up for this gun. So Mm -hmm. the way that this is designed is there's like this big, it's a circular room, but the slats don't go right to the wall. So they're kind of standing on this big circle in the middle of the room and the paintings or the hieroglyphics are suspended, but there is room for someone to plummet over the side. So as they are fighting, Dana is able to fend off the werewolf, but Patience Buckner walks in, who is the last surviving Buckner. And this is why I mentioned her earlier, because she becomes, you know, important later. Dana is able to warn Marty just in time for Patience Buckner to stab the director. And then Marty is able to kick Patience Buckner and the director over the side of the ledge, just leaving a very battered and bloody duo of Marty and Dana to sit and kind of wait for the world to end. And there's some very funny dialogue of, you know, they apologize to one another. They're like, hey, 
I didn't mean to point a gun at you. And he's like, I'm sorry, I got you attacked by a werewolf. I let it happen. Like they're apologizing to one another and making small talk and passing a joint back and forth. And (laughs) Dana's like, you know, I don't even think Kurt has a cousin. (laughs) But um, Dana says, you know, you were right about humanity. I think it's time to give someone else a turn, which is hearkening back toward Marty's dialogue from earlier where he's just like, society's due for a crumbling. We're just all too chicken shit to let it happen. So this is proving Mm. that Marty was kind of right that maybe the best thing for humanity is just to let it die out because obviously we're not doing too good of a job treating each other kindly. So maybe we deserve to be exterminated. So they just kind of sit there and watch as the room begins to crumble around them. The ground begins to shake. The ritual falls apart. And this big hand, which I've read is apparently the hand of the god Kronos, which I don't know what that means. Maybe it's death or something. I don't know. Comes out of the ground and smashes the house down as if it's like just like a fake replica house. And then the movie ends. So mm-hmm. the movie ends with Dana and Marty letting humanity get destroyed because they didn't want to be the sacrifices and they die along with humanity. And that's the end. Yeah. So what do you think, Shay? <laughs> <laughs> well, first off, I, I also read another bit of trivia where someone asked the director if there was a sequel. And he's like, did you see the end to my movie? Like humanity died. <laughs> I think it's very smart. You know, I think this movie is kind of a rehashing of Scream, which came out, I believe, in 95 or 94. It's one of my favorites and was kind of one of the first of its kind to examine what a world looks like where horror movie knows that other horror movies exist. And Scream is different in the sense where it's self-aware, where the teens are fans of horror movies and they are aware that there are these patterns and they're calling these tropes out, but they're still participating in them in a way that still culminates in a slasher, where this movie kind of goes against all of that innately by saying, hey, there are these patterns and fuck them because we're not going to give you a satisfying ending. The ending is that the world ended. And that's not a satisfying ending. Like, you know, you sit there and you're kind of like, I'm not satisfied with that. But by doing that, it didn't give you what you wanted. Because even though you were getting all of these tropes and being aware of all of these things, you're still being entertained and you still want to have that satisfying ending. And the movie doesn't let you have it. Because it's (laughs) saying like, you want Dana to survive or you want Marty to be the sole survivor. Like it wants to subverse itself, but it can't subverse itself. Otherwise it wouldn't be making the point that it's trying to make. So I think it's obviously incredibly intelligent, incredibly aware. You know, I think in order for movies like this to be as observant as they are, they almost need to be rehashed every like 15 years because Scream only knew a world with Halloween and Friday the 13th and A Nightmare on Elm Street, where this movie is kind of bookending it and saying a lot of shit's happened since then. So let's let's Mm -hmm. let's rehash this a little bit. And I've read that the directors called it like a loving hate letter to the film industry because they're saying like you're doing all of these things and you're not assuming that your audience notices these things you're assuming that they're Mm -hmm. not smart and you need to be better you need to do other things and you know i think about the movies that have been released since then especially with like the get outs of the world and the the purges of the world and the us's of the world and the midsummers of the world and Mm. the hereditaries of the world and i like witches yeah the witches and, (laughs) and all of that kind of stuff and i like to think that 
it's movies like this and like obviously like the scary movie franchise that are kind of like we see what you're doing and we're getting tired so let's move towards something else and i think I don't want to say this movie was the reason for that, but it helps. It helps kind of take stock of what history has looked like up until that point. So it can push itself in another direction. So obviously I think it's great in doing what it set out to do, but obviously like it's going to become dated. It's going to become like not as on the nose or as relevant as it feels to us right now, because all of these movies are salient to our upbringing. Even if you haven't seen them, you, you notice what these characters are, who they represent, but what is your perspective since like I was steeped in all of these things. So this was kind of like a treat being like, I know him, I know him. But like, what was yours? Like what, like, how did you find this? The thing that I caught on to was the humor in choosing the impact of not fulfilling the pattern as the end of the world, because it felt to me as if it was saying, we act as if in making these movies, if they don't follow a certain pattern, the world will end Mm -hmm. when really it's not like that. We can do other things, you know, it's not like Kronos is going to literally rise from the ground and kill everybody if we do something different. (laughs) That's a good (laughs) So I... I caught on to that and I did find the humor in that. But I think if I could do this again, I would like to have a little bit more experience in the movies that they directly reference. Specifically, what is it? The Night of... What was The Walking Dead one? Not The Walking Dead. Oh, Evil Dead. Evil Dead. Especially that one because I did see that it seemed like there were a lot of references made to that. And also Chainsaw Massacre. It seemed like that one was hyper-present as well based on some things that I read and some things that you said. Also, those are two movies that I, I think you know this too. I know that I'm not ready for. (laughs) (laughs) They are very, they are very visceral. They are very bloody. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess it maybe having this movie will help me watch those because I can, I don't know, know that some humor has been made of those things. It was interesting to see how far I had come and, and the things that I could pick up on because I wouldn't have been able to pick up on those things, I think, if I had watched this movie a year ago. So that's really cool that I at least, I think, got a C on the test, if there was a test. <laughs> but I was about to say, like, if you can handle the merman blowhole amount of blood, then I think you can handle, <laughs> like, maybe not. I mean, that's the thing. Like, yeah, Texas Chainsaw and Evil Dead, like, I feel like we haven't been going in order of cultural or historical like relevance of horror movies. We've been going toward <laughs> how much gore can Elise handle? <laughs> and one day we will make it to Hostel or the Saw movies, but we're not there yet. <laughs> but yeah, I would say Evil Dead and Texas Chainsaw kind of exist in and around the same tier. But And I agree. I think having those references fresh in your head may have been helpful but like i don't think that like a horror virgin could walk into this movie and walk away not having picked up on anything right because it's the idea that like if you've seen one you've seen them all like Mm -hmm. everyone liked it i think obviously like it did a lot of fan service where if you're an avid fan you're going to get more out of it but they made a movie where you could watch a horror movie that says if you've seen one you've seen them all because you're able to identify these things and Mm -hmm. It's both good and bad because it's kind of like, hey, I earned my ability to enjoy this movie more than anybody else. Fuck you. But at the same time, it sets out to do what it wants to do and like making mm-hmm. a scary piece of media. Right. That is a really good point. It does seem like it appeals to a lot of different audiences. 
but I do think it would have freaked me out more before. Whereas now, like I said, it felt like easy watching (laughs) compared to some of the other things we've watched and some of the other things we will watch. So, but yeah, that's Cabin in the Woods. We did that because obviously people wanted to see it. And we have some plans of brewing for our spooky season that's coming up. Obviously, everyone's favorite season of them all. So we're cooking up some ideas, but (laughs) we want those ideas to be with your input. So if you want us to cover a movie or if you have a request or if you have thoughts on Cabin in the Woods or, you know, any other movie you want us to cover, you can definitely feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And or follow us on Instagram, also at the same handle, at the Horrors Podcast. Yes, our schedule is flying by the seat of its pants at the moment because mm-hmm. we are testing this dual state podcast setup. So if you're hearing this, that means we have succeeded and we are <laughs> yeah. coming out the other side with a success story. But just keep an eye on our Instagram for what we're doing next and the things to come. And as always, we're just grateful there's people still listening. <laughs> yes. And for those of you who are still listening, we do have something really cool coming up, hopefully by the end of September. So definitely keep that in your minds and look forward to that because I think it's going to be cool. Absolutely. Cool. So until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.